Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for tuning in to the Jet Set Medics podcast premiere. My name is Antosh. I'm a junior doctor working in the southwest of England and the founder of Jet Set Medics. Today, we're very fortunate to have two guests who I'd like to, who I can call both my friends and my colleagues with us. So I'd like to introduce, first of all, Mr. Joe Muscat, who is a foundation year three doctor working in the Thames Valley Deanery, and Dr. Dawood Razak, who is a foundation year two doctor working in the Seven Deanery and who has both academic and clinical interests. Thank you very much for joining us both. Thank you. Thank you. So first of all, we'd just like to start off with getting an idea of where you're from and your journeys to get you to where you are now. Could you, could you start off with you, Joe? If you could just tell us a bit about your story, please. Yeah, sure. So I graduated in 2017 from the first faculty of medicine in Charles Uni in Prague. I did my foundation year one training in the East of England deanery, where I rotated through general surgery, acute medicine and general medicine. I then moved to Thames Valley Deanery, where I did my F2 year, and I did maxillofacial surgery, emergency medicine, and trauma and orthopedics. I've taken a year out of training before starting my core surgical training, and uh, which I've been sort of locuming in emergency medicine uh, throughout the year. Great, thank you very much. And how about you, Dawood? Yeah. <clears throat> I uh, graduated in December 2016 from the Medical University of Varna, which is in Bulgaria. After that, uh, following getting my GMC registration, I uh, accepted a trust grade post at Shrewsbury Hospital, which is part of the West, Mid West Midlands Deanery. Um, after completing my trust grade post, I uh, was accepted into a standalone F2 training post in Seven Deanery, which is uh, where I am at currently. Great. Thank you very much. So, Joe, would you just, first of all be able to tell us a little bit about what a Foundation Year 3 doctor is? Sure. So, a Foundation Year 3 doctor is sort of, it's an informal term of someone who has completed their foundation training, but has decided not to go into uh, higher training yet, and essentially has taken time out of training. It, it's, it's becoming quite common, almost sort of a third of F2s are now doing it and for various reasons, either to get sort of more clinical exposure, to improve their CV, uh, to work abroad, which was my sort of main aim, but unfortunately COVID has put a stop to that, to save money or for, you know, personal circumstances. The foundation program itself is something that you need to complete and it's over sort of two years. And by the end of those two years, you would have done six rotations and it will give you an FPCC. Uh, essentially, what that means is you've got a foundation program certificate of completion. Once you've got that foundation program certificate of completion, you're then sort of eligible to go on to further training, whether that be sort of down the course surgical route, whether that be down the sort of general medical route into GP, obstetrics, psychiatry, pediatrics. The certificate is valid for three and a half years. So you can take a bit of time out of training before going into further training to sort of f f continue and sort of try and uh, fulfill whatever ambitions you have that you want to achieve in that time. Great, thank you. So a lot of international medical graduates, when they finish their training, they get the full GMC registration. 
and that means that they're not eligible to apply for a foundation year one, foundation year two linked training program. So how does that affect their ability to do an F3 and are there any alternative routes for them to complete their training as a foundation level doctor? Sure. No, it's a good point, Antash. And actually, uh, you were right. My initial foundation year program uh, in F1 was a standalone program. I was subsequently offered a F2 post in the deanery that I was working in. I then went on to do a standalone F2 program because I wanted to switch deaneries. If you do not get an official sort of foundation year program training in the first two years, there is an alternative and it's uh, something that's just as valid uh, and it gives you a CREST certificate and that stands for Certificate of Readiness to Enter Specialty. The only sort of slight drawback when you compare the FPCC to the CREST is that the CREST is not as valid for as many years. So if you are thinking about doing uh, an F3, that's fine. You can still do an F3, but be aware that the certificate that you will achieve is, I think, only valid for two years. The, the full sort of explanation on the difference between FPCC and CREST will be on the website. Uh, but it's just something that you need to bear in mind because, you know, it's not uncommon now for people to do an F3, an F4, an F5, but you just need to be aware of how long the certificate that you've achieved after the first two years of your training is valid for. Great, thank you. So Dawood, you mentioned that you took the, the trust grade pathway. Would you be able to tell us, tell our listeners a little bit more about that and what the differences may be in between a trainee doctor and a trust grade doctor? Absolutely, Antash. So while a training post is generally something with which you go through Oriel or national recruitment and you are allocated to a deanery, um, trust grade posts are more obtained via NHS jobs or by hospitals themselves because you are, as a trust grade doctor, you are a contracted worker for that hospital. On paper, that can mean that you don't have as many training opportunities or that you're not allowed um, uh, to go to teaching or have a teaching uh, fund. However, in my experience, um, I found that we were given the same benefits as normal training grades in terms of we, were, we had a study budget, we were allowed to go to teaching, and we were given e-portfolio as well, which is something that's not guaranteed if you're trust grade. I think my advice would be to anyone that goes down the trust grade route is to specify that you would like these things in your interview so that you are on evil footing with everyone else. Excellent. Thank you very much. So now I'd just like to open a quick discussion because we've obviously got quite a few international medical graduates here today about your kind of experience going through that transition between medical students and F1 doctor in the UK. Joe, do you want to just start it off by telling us about your insights? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think it's, I speak for everyone who is starting as an F1, not just international medical graduates, but, you know, any graduate, you're going to be nervous on your first day. And the transition from being a medical student to a doctor uh, is scary, but you just have to remember that everyone is going through it. And just because you have studied abroad doesn't necessarily mean you're at a significant disadvantage to everyone else. 
from my experience, when I started my F1 post, I think about 60% of the F1s who were starting with me had graduated from the university that was affiliated with the hospital that we were working in. So I was expecting everyone to know exactly what they were doing. And that was not the case. People were just as nervous, they were just as confused, and they were just as scared. So I, thought, I suppose the message to the people that are listening, that if you are worried about that sort of transition, is that, you know, you will still, there, there may be a few things that you uh, are unaware of that some of the, you know, national medical graduates are aware of, but you will quickly catch up. And it's just to, you know, make sure that you're as prepared as you can for when you, when you start. Thank you. I think it's really important that people know that, isn't it? Because I certainly remember always comparing myself with the indigenous graduates and always feeling that I don't know enough. But once you get through the first few weeks and you see that everyone's complaining about the same stuff, it's really reassuring to know that, you know, even though they've been in the system, that the F1 period, the, the transition period is really quite difficult. How about you, Dawood? Can you share some of your experiences, please? Yeah, I would absolutely echo all of the sentiments that Joe has just mentioned. Everyone, regardless of who you are, will feel nervous on their first day, as Joe had said. And while most of us will think that's because we came from abroad and from a different healthcare system and a different form of studying and form of learning, I think that that nervousness has got more to do with simply transitioning to being a working doctor. And that's something that any graduate will have to go through. There's a big difference between studying at a medical school and being a doctor. And no matter where you studied, that jump will still be quite high. I would say the main two things that uh, as an international medical graduate, um, myself and through talking to my colleagues and friends, the main two things that we feel most nervous about is clinical skills and the structure or bureaucracy of a hospital, how things get done, uh, how to document. And both those things, I think, are very easy to pick up on the job. And with practice, if you are diligent enough to be proactive and get yourself in the situations where you get to practice those skills. Uh, knowledge is something that we all have an abundance of, so I don't think that's much to worry about. Okay, great. Thank you, Dawood. And I would certainly agree with what Dawood just said. And as a, a sort of a, a tip and something I possibly wish I'd done more of while I was at medical school is to do um, electives. While I was doing my electives, I decided to spend more time in theatre, which, you know, is more fun than possibly being on the wards. But in hindsight, I think spending time with an F1, if you can, uh, will certainly give you an insight into what's expected of you in the job and will give you um, a brief overview of how to get things done. So it's something I'd certainly recommend if you have a chance to do it. And if anything, I think the F1 would be quite happy to get some extra help on the wards, wouldn't they? Exactly. Yeah, perfect. So I'd like to now move on to COVID-19 and how that's affected all of us, really. Um, obviously, it's affected our training. It's affected us from a personal point of view. And I'd just like to spend a bit of time talking about that from your experiences on the front line as COVID-19 soldiers, really. 
Um, so, Dawood, as a, as a trainee, how has COVID-19 affected your training and how, how do you think it might change training in the future? Mm, that's a very good question. I'd say in these early times of the coronavirus outbreak, it has put a bit of a pause on training. Uh, teaching has been reduced to webinars and while initially that can be more cumbersome and taxing to join on to, I think that will play a huge part in the future of medical education as we find that it is not always necessary to have everyone in the same room for a seminar if there's no practical elements to it. I think a lot more of our training will be streamlined into being web-based and then people-based or in-person-based. So what do you prefer, Dawood? Do you prefer webinars or do you prefer face-to-face teaching? I would say the, the old-fashioned in me says I'd prefer face-to-face teaching. But having had more and more experience in, in the last few weeks with webinars, I'd definitely say they have their pros and they're useful, more than useful in a lot of settings, especially, like I'd said, in settings where you don't need to be practicing practical skills. You can have just as much engagement with your group or with your class through a webinar. Uh, you can share screens and slides in a webinar just as smoothly so that everyone's on the same page. So I think I will grow to like web-based teaching a bit more, but it's a nice little transition that we have to go through. I certainly agree. You've got the added perk of being able to sit in your pajamas. And could you just tell us a typical day in the life of a COVID-19 worker? Yeah, absolutely. So our hospital has done a very interesting thing of dissolving all current specialities and departments into five main teams. And for, for the most part, junior doctors or F2 doctors have been placed on the front door team, which is basically an amalgamation of the medical admissions unit, the surgical admissions unit, and the emergency department. So we get to see all admissions that come in via GP or urgent care or patients by themselves or via ambulance. And that's given, while challenging, a much greater scope of medical presentations that you see. Um, I would say, especially in terms of emergency department, I wasn't the most confident going into it, but it's been a very good learning experience to, to simply do it and throw yourself in at the deep end and learn by doing. And Joe, you're working as an emergency medicine doctor. Could you tell us how this has had an impact specifically on ED and how it's changed your practice? Sure. So I think when the lockdown started back in March, it was a very sort of eerie time in ED because there wasn't as many admissions, certainly in the region where I'm working, which had comparatively lower COVID rates compared to the rest of the UK. But over time, in addition to seeing sort of the COVID cases, uh, there were sort of the later presentations of the sort of bread and butter presentations that you'd see in ED coming through. There was what I felt was an increase in the number of mental health patients who were coming to ED. uh, And a lot of that was attributed to the lockdown. 
and the anxiety and uncertainty surrounding COVID. The way we've sort of changed in our hospital in terms of how we're sort of running the ED department was that the department was split into a COVID and non-COVID area. So the changes to practice there were that you had to be very vigilant with sort of your PPE going from one area to another, trying to reduce the transmission between patients, reduce the transmission between yourself and colleagues. There was the sort of constant battle of keeping up to date with new guidelines as well. Uh, every day there'd sort of be a slight change that you needed to be aware of, um, or there'd be a new guideline sort of released from the ALS, uh, which, which you need to sort of be up to date with. But it did provide ample opportunities for learning, as Darwood was saying. There was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of interesting presentations, say, from COVID or uh, from sort of different ways that we can learn new information, particularly through webinars. And I completely agree with what Darwood was getting at, that webinars are sort of quite a, a useful and valuable tool. And I certainly think they're going to be more employed in the future through uh, with medicine. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting how a lot of education has now gone online. And I've particularly found um, some websites to be of use. So the Royal Society of Medicine does some, some weekly updates on COVID and how that's affecting things like well-being, how it's affecting diagnostics and other aspects of medicine. Health Education England has also put up some really useful webinars to help doctors who have maybe been out of training for some time and who've come back to help in the fight against COVID um, to help with their acclimatization. So these are really useful and they're available on YouTube. So one of our subscribers sent in a question to ask about how COVID-19 would affect the recruitment of international medical graduates in terms of jobs, availability and interview processes. So just like to us to discuss a little bit about this. So from what I understand, Given the current scenario, there has been a focus on service provision rather than recruitment. But as we move into phase two, which has been in the last week or so, um, there will be more jobs available. And there are interviews that are going to be carried out using platforms such as Zoom or Microsoft Office. So even though things have been uncertain for some time, I think we're finding a bit of clarity going forward. Joe, would you be able to tell us any ways in which um, international medical graduates can look for jobs to, to help them start as soon as possible? Um, I suppose my best advice would be just uh, keep looking at the websites. So the main websites I would sort of advise using would be NHS jobs, track jobs, Messily. Uh, they, you know, they keep an eye out every day or every other day, just have a quick look, see what's being advertised. and if, if there's a sort of job that takes your fancy, certainly go for it. I know I, I had a brief look on NHS jobs recently, and I did see two F1 jobs being advertised. So I think things may slowly be sort of getting back to normality from that point of view. Also, another good top tip is to simply call the HR department of your local hospital if you'd like to live or work locally as they will be able to inform you of any job opportunities that open up before they're uploaded on the website. And you can maybe even upload a CV or send them a CV directly. So leaving COVID-19 behind, looking to the future, Joe, I understand that you're going to be starting your surgical training in August. Could you tell our listeners who are 
and those particularly who are interested in pursuing a career in surgery, what the training program is like in the UK and how you've made the most of your F3 year to, to get your CV on point for that. Yep, sure. So the surgical training program in the UK is quite long when you compare it to other countries, but by the end of it, you will be a very well-rounded surgeon in the specialty that you want to pursue. Following your completion of your foundation years, you go into core surgical training, which is a two-year program. And then following that, you go into your registrar post. What that means is that you sort of go two years in core surgical training, and then you're going to go into your registrar years, which is usually sort of five to six years in the specialty that you want to uh, pursue. Once you've completed your registrar years, you then go for your uh, CCT, and then you will be appointed a consultancy post in your specialty. The stage that I'm at is I've just, I'm just about to start my core surgical training in August. It's, there's a lot you can sort of do to try and improve your CV for while you're going into your core surgical training uh, interview. So in building up my application, I suppose the advice I'd give to anyone who wants to pursue surgery, the sort of things I've tried to accomplish over the, my foundation program and my F3 were you need to sort of make sure that you get to theatre. You need to try and prove to the interviewers that you've established some procedures. So start a logbook early. You can give a link on the website to one of the logbooks that's used. It's free uh, and it's something you should certainly start from an F1. Uh, and make sure that you log the procedures. You should get involved with teaching, um, ideally, if you can, on a national level, uh, but you need to essentially show to the interviewers that you are involved in teaching regularly. From a sort of an audit quality improvement point of view, you should be involved in audits. You should ideally try and present these at sort of uh, national or international conferences. You also need to demonstrate your leadership abilities. So try and get involved in any sort of uh, societies that are available in your area or sort of nationally. The other thing to uh, sort of touch on is the exams. So the MRCS is the uh, exam that you need to sit in order to get into your registrars. It stands for the Membership uh, Royal College of Surgery exams. And you are fortunate if you're going down the surgical route and that you, there's no sort of specified time window of when you can do these exams. So you could, in theory, sit your part A as an F1. You could sit your part B as an F1 as well if you wanted to and you were very dedicated. Not that many people do it, but certainly a lot of people are getting the exams out the way uh, prior to starting their core surgical training. So it's something I would uh, recommend considering if you are looking to go down to that route. I took an F3 year for several reasons. One, it was to sort of help improve my uh, CV and my uh, application process for getting a core surgical training job. And there was a few things I wanted to accomplish from it. One was to sort of complete my exams, complete any sort of outstanding quality improvement projects that I had, and to uh, start a postgraduate certificate in medical education, which is something that uh, is sort of quite valued uh, within not just surgery, but sort of throughout all specialties nowadays. 
but the main reason why I did an F3 was to try and get some overseas clinical experience. And unfortunately, COVID has sort of put a halt to that. So I didn't quite accomplish what I wanted to in my F3, but I would certainly recommend anyone who wants to take a bit of time out of training to get that experience. And F3 is a good time to do it. Great, thank you. And David, I understand that you're in the process of taking an F3 as well. Can you just tell our listeners what your thought process was to that? Yeah, absolutely. Much like Joe, I, I wanted to take an F3 for a number of reasons. The main three that come to mind is one, wanting to improve my CV and application for speciality training, as that's always helpful for either specialities that are more competitive like surgery or anesthetics or if you would like to uh, be accepted into a training post that's in a region that you prefer or region that's close to you. Uh, another reason for taking an F3 year for me was to increase my exposure to uh, anesthetic jobs or in, uh, jobs in intensive care as that is my speciality that I'd like to go into. And uh, I, I feel getting experience is experience and that's very valuable to get at such uh, formative years of our training and of being a doctor. And then the third is just to have a bit more of a flexible work life schedule for one year, um, which would allow me to travel and work abroad much like Joe had um, attempted to this year. I have a few questions about that, Joe, if that's all right. Uh, what would be the best places to try and arrange uh, placements abroad? That's a good question, Dawid. It's, uh, it's not as straightforward as one might think. So my advice would be to start planning early. If you're really dead set on wanting to get some experience abroad, I would certainly start considering it in your F1 year. Uh, at least sort of start sending out some emails and things and sort of get linking into uh, you know, some of the uh, charities that organize that. I think it depends what you want to get out of it. If you're happy to go and do unpaid work, there are a lot of charities that are willing to sort of take you. If you're wanting to get paid for it and go and work in different countries, that can sort of put up a few more barriers. And it's if you're graduating from overseas, depending on the country that you want to go and work in, certainly look to make sure that the uh, medical qualification that you have is recognized by them. It doesn't mean that you can't go and work there. It just might mean that there's a few extra sort of hoops that you have to jump through or an exam that you may need to sit. I found that there were a lot of uh, very useful websites and a lot of very useful people who are willing to take uh, people at sort of F2 level uh, into their charities uh, a lot of uh, the websites that i used will be posted onto the jet set medics website for people who want to sort of further look into this um but as you said it's also a great opportunity to travel and it's one of the few sort of steps in your sort of medical career path where you can take sort of a good month to go and explore a country so if that's something you are very ambitious and keen to do uh, it's certainly a good time to do it and, and Joe, when you were applying for your core surgical training post during your F3 year, was there, any, was there any issues applying, going through the application process because you were on a, a kind of gap year or was it quite straightforward? For me personally, it didn't affect my application process. It's, uh, for my current job, 
I simply put the locum agency that I was working for and there didn't seem to be any problem. It wasn't brought up in my interview. Now, I can't speak for everyone who's taken an F3, but it certainly wasn't a problem for me. I don't know if it will you know, be brought up while I'm going for my registrar posts, but I think the best advice I can give is try and justify why you've taken an F3. And there are so many ways that you can justify why you've taken an F3. So for me, I completed my exams, I started a postgraduate certificate, and I wanted to get some experience abroad. As long as you can try and prove why it was sort of useful for you to take an F3, then I don't see why any interviewer should have a problem with that. Another question, one of our sub question, one of our subscribers asked was, if they for any reason had to take a year out in between their studies or during their studies, would that affect their ability to get a job? Have any of you come across this sort of thing and any views that you have about it? I, I had personally taken a year out between second and third year of uh, my medical school. Um, there are many reasons that people go through this, whether it's a failed exam or personal issues. And as someone who's been through it, I'd like to reassure you all and say that it personally for me hasn't had any bearing on my career or my application process. I'd included it in my CV um, and it's quite clear that I'd taken a year out, but it was never asked about or mentioned. So, so coming into a close now on the podcast, I think it's a, a good time to talk about what we wish we knew before we started our jobs and how we could have better prepared ourselves to face the transition into being an F1. Joe, from your experience, what do you wish you did and what advice would you give to anyone starting their F1 or close to starting their F1? I suppose in hindsight, uh, I would have spent more time with F1s on my clinical placements. I think I briefly mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but if you have the chance to do sort of placement selectives in UK hospitals at your time in medical school, as fun and exciting as it is to go to clinics or go to theatres, you're not going to get to that stage until, you know, a few years into your training and your bread and butter of your job is going to be on the wards in the first few years. So I think if I had spent more time with F1s on the ward, I would have possibly picked up a few tips and tricks for the simple things such as how to document in notes or how to convince a radiologist to accept your scan or you know how to how to chase blood it's, it's these little things that you sort of need to uh, pick up and whether you have a chance or not you will pick them up when you start your job but I think if I'd spend a bit more time doing that I probably would have been a bit more confident going into uh, the F1 post Thank you. And Dawood, from your side, what do you wish you knew? I would say I wish I knew the, the simple way of getting proficient and even very good at clinical skills such as venipuncture or cannulation or catheterizing or putting in NG tubes is that being proactive and simply trying is the key to success. Uh, the more you do it, the more comfortable you will be. And it's something that you can pick up very quickly if you put yourself in a situation where you have to at least try. Um, another thing that I'd recommend more than anything else, and this is something that everyone recommends, is to 
uh, take advantage of the experience that nurses have in your department when you move to a new rotation. Uh, they are seasoned professionals that have uh, been in a ward and department for many, many years, and they'll be able to advise you on many things that you wouldn't think were possible. I think the other thing I'd uh, like to add is to try and learn some of the acronyms that are used in the UK. Uh, they are going to be completely different to what you've been taught in medical school, and it can make your life a lot easier. And it's certainly something that uh, you should spend a bit of time learning. And I think Antash is putting together a document which will be put onto the Jetset Medics website, which I would certainly recommend taking a look at before you start. That's right. So that will be coming on the website shortly. It's often the way judged in our ability to know what AF stands for rather than the pathophysiology behind it, which we all got hammered into our heads at university. And that's it for today. So I'd just like to say thank you very much again to our two guests. And we look forward to having you back soon and wish you guys all the best for your future. Cool. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're most welcome. Thank you very much.